and in Ezekiel 11 verses 19 and 20, he promises to take from them the stony heart and to give them a heart of flesh so that they shall walk in his statutes and keep his ordinances and so that they shall be his people and he their God. Peter tells us that Christians cannot fall away for they by the power of God are guarded through faith unto a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. 1 Peter 1.5 Paul says, God is able to make all grace to abound unto you, that ye, having always all sufficiency in everything, may abound unto every good work. 2 Corinthians 9.8 He declares that the Lord's servant shall be made to stand, for the Lord hath power to make him stand. Romans 14.4 And Christians have the further promise, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as man can bear. But God is faithful, and will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation make also the way of escape, that ye may be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 Their removal from certain temptations, which would be too strong for them, is an absolute and free gift from God, since it is entirely an arrangement of His providence, as to what temptations they encounter in the course of their lives and what ones they escape. The Lord is faithful and will establish you and guide you from the evil one. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 3 And again, the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Psalm 34 7 Amid all his trials and hardships, Paul could say, we are pressed on every side, yet not straightened, perplexed, yet not unto despair, pursued, yet not forsaken, smitten down, and yet not destroyed, knowing that he that raised up the Lord Jesus Christ shall raise us also with Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8, 9, and 14. The saints even in this world are compared to a tree that does not wither. Psalm 1, verse 3 to the cedars which flourish on Mount Lebanon, Psalm 92, verse 12, to Mount Zion which cannot be moved, but which abideth forever, Psalm 125, verse 1, and to a house built on a rock, Matthew 7:24. The Lord is with them in their old age, Isaiah 46, 4, and is their guide even unto death, Psalm 48:14, so that they cannot be totally and finally lost. Another strong argument is to be noticed concerning the Lamb's Book of Life. The disciples were told to rejoice, not so much over the fact that the demons were subject to them, but that their names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life. This book is the catalog of the elect, determined by the unalterable counsel of God, and can neither be increased nor diminished. The names of the righteous are found there, but the names of those who perish have never been written there from the foundation of the world. God does not make the mistake of writing in the book of life a name which he will later have to blot out. Hence, none of the Lord's own ever perish. Jesus told his disciples to find their chief joy in the fact that their names were written in heaven, Luke 10, verse 20. Yet there would have been small grounds for joy in this respect if the names were written in heaven one day, which could have been blotted out the next. 
Paul wrote to the Philippians, Our citizenship is in heaven, chapter 3, verse 20. And to Timothy he wrote, The Lord knoweth them that are his, 2 Timothy 2.19. For the scripture teaching concerning the book of life, see Luke chapter 10, verse 20, Philippians 4.3, Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, chapter 13, verse 8, chapter 17, verse 8, chapter 20, verses 12 through 15, and chapter 21, verse 27. Here, then, are very simple and plain statements that the Christians shall continue in grace, the reason being that the Lord takes it upon himself to preserve him in that state. In these promises, the elect are secured on both sides. Not only will God not depart from them, but he will so put his fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from him. Surely no spirit-taught Christian can doubt that this doctrine is taught in the Bible. It seems that man, poor, wretched, and impotent as he is, would welcome a doctrine which secures for him the possessions of eternal happiness, despite all attacks from without and all evil tendencies from within. But it is not so. He refuses it and argues against it. And the causes are not far to seek. In the first place, he has more confidence in himself than he has any right to have. Secondly, the scheme is so contrary to what he is used to in the natural world that he persuades himself that it cannot be true. Thirdly, he perceives that if this doctrine be admitted, the other doctrines of free grace will logically follow. Hence he twists and explains away the scripture passages which teach it and clings to some which appear on the surface to favor his preconceived views. In fact, the system of salvation by grace is so utterly at variance with his everyday experience in which he sees everything in person treated according to works and merits that he has great difficulty in bringing himself to believe that it can be true. He wishes to earn his own salvation, though certainly he expects very high wages for very sorry work. Section 3 Objections Commonly Urged Against the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination Chapter 15, page 205 1. That it is fatalism Much misunderstanding arises through confusing the Christian doctrine of predestination with the heathen doctrine of fatalism. There is in reality only one point of agreement between the two, which is that both assume the absolute certainty of all future events. The essential difference between them is that fatalism has no place for a personal God. Predestination holds that events come to pass because an infinitely wise, powerful, and holy God has so appointed them. Fatalism holds that all events come to pass through the working of a blind, unintelligent, impersonal, non-moral force which cannot be distinguished from physical necessity and which carries us helplessly within its grasp as a mighty river carries a piece of wood. Predestination teaches that from eternity God has had one unified plan or purpose which he is bringing to perfection through this world order of events. It holds that all of his decrees are rational determinations founded on sufficient reason and that he has fixed one great goal toward which the whole creation moves. 
Predestination holds that the ends designed in this plan are first, the glory of God, and second, the good of his people. On the other hand, fatalism excludes the idea of final causes. It snatches the reins of universal empire from the hands of infinite wisdom and love and gives them into the hands of a blind necessity. It attributes the course of nature and the experiences of mankind to an unknown, irresistible force against which it is vain to struggle and childish to repine. According to the doctrine of predestination, the freedom and responsibility of man are fully preserved. In the midst of certainty, God has ordained human liberty. But fatalism allows no power of choice, no self-determination. It makes the acts of man to be as utterly beyond his control as are the laws of nature. Fatalism, with its idea of irresistible, impersonal, abstract power, has no room for moral ideas, while predestination makes these the rule of action for God and man. Fatalism has no place for and offers no incentives to religion, love, mercy, holiness, justice, or wisdom, while predestination gives these the strongest conceivable basis. And lastly, fatalism leads to skepticism and despair, while predestination sets forth the glories of God and of his kingdom in all their splendor, and gives an assurance which nothing can shake. Predestination, therefore, differs from fatalism as much as the acts of a man differs from those of a machine, or as much as the unfailing love of the Heavenly Father differs from the force of gravitation. It reveals to us, says Smith, the glorious truth that our lives and our sensitive hearts are held not in the iron cogwheels of a vast and pitiless fate, nor in the whirling loom of a crazy chance, but in the almighty hands of an infinitely good and wise God. Calvin emphatically repudiated the charge that his doctrine was fatalism. Fate, says he, is a term given by the Stoics to their doctrine of necessity, which they had formed out of a labyrinth of contradictory reasonings, a doctrine calculated to call God himself to order and to set him laws whereby to work. Predestination I define to be, according to the Holy Scriptures, that free and unfettered counsel of God by which he rules all mankind and all men and things and also all parts and particles of the world by his infinite wisdom and incomprehensible justice. And again, had you but been willing to look into my books, you would have been convinced at once how offensive to me is the profane term fate. Nay, you would have learned that this same abhorrent term was cast in the teeth of Augustine by his opponents. Luther says that the doctrine of fatalism among the heathen is a proof that the knowledge of predestination and of prescience of God was no less left in the world than the notion of divinity itself. In the history of philosophy, materialism has proven itself essentially fatalistic. Pantheism also has been strongly tinged with it. No man can be a consistent fatalist, for to be consistent he would have to reason something like this. 
If I am to die today, it will do me no good to eat, for I shall die anyway. Nor do I need to eat if I am to live many years yet, for I shall live anyway. Therefore I will not eat. Needless to say, if God has foreordained that a man shall live, he has also foreordained that he shall also be kept from the suicidal folly of refusing to eat. This doctrine, says Hamilton, is only superficially like the pagan fate. The Christian is in the hands not of a cold, immutable determinism, but of a warm, loving Heavenly Father, who loved us and gave His Son to die for us on Calvary. The Christian knows that all things work together for good to them that love God, even to them that are called according to His purpose. The Christian can trust God because he knows he is all-wise, loving, just, and holy. He sees the end from the beginning, so that there is no reason to become panicky when things seem to be going against us. Hence, only a person who has not examined this doctrine of predestination, or one who is maliciously inclined, will rashly charge that it is fatalism. There is no excuse for anyone making this mistake, who knows what predestination is and what fatalism is. Since the universe is one systematized unit, we must choose between fatalism, which ultimately does away with mind and purpose, and this biblical doctrine of predestination, which holds that God created all things, that his providence extends to all his works, and that while free himself, he has also provided that we shall be free within the limits of our natures. Instead of our doctrine of predestination being the same with the heathen doctrine of fatalism, it is its absolute opposite and only alternative. Chapter 16, page 208 That it is inconsistent with the free agency and moral responsibility of God. 1. The problem of man's free agency. 2. This objection bears equally against foreknowledge. 3. Certainty is consistent with free agency. 4. Man's natural will is enslaved to evil. 5. God controls the minds of men and gives his people the will to come. 6. The way in which the will is determined. 7. Scripture proof. 1. The problem of man's free agency. The problem we face here is how can a person be a free and responsible agent if his actions have been foreordained from eternity? By a free and responsible agent we mean an intelligent person who acts with rational self-determination, and by foreordination we mean that from eternity God has made certain the actual course of events which take place in the life of every person and in the realm of nature. It is, of course, admitted by all that a person's acts must be without compulsion and in accordance with his own desires and inclination, or he cannot be held responsible for them. If the acts of a free agent are in their very nature contingent and uncertain, then it is plain that foreordination and free agency are inconsistent. The philosopher who is convinced of the existence of a vast power by whom all things exist and are controlled is forced to inquire where the finite will can find expression under the reign of the infinite.
The true solution of this difficult question respecting the sovereignty of God and the freedom of man is not to be found in the denial of either, but rather in such a reconciliation as gives full weight to each, yet which assigns a preeminence to the divine sovereignty corresponding to the infinite exaltation of the Creator above the sinful creature. The same God who has ordained all events has ordained human liberty in the midst of these events, and this liberty is as surely fixed as is anything else. Man is no mere automaton or machine. In the divine plan, which is infinite in variety and complexity, which reaches from everlasting to everlasting, and which includes millions of free agents who act and interact and react upon each other, God has ordained that human beings shall keep their liberty under his sovereignty. He has made no attempt to give us a formal explanation of these things, and our limited human knowledge is not able fully to solve the problem. Since the scripture writers did not hesitate to affirm the absolute sway of God over the thoughts and intents of the heart, they felt no embarrassment in including the acts of free agents within his all-embracing plan. That the makers of the Westminster Confession recognize the freedom of man is plain, for immediately after declaring that God has freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass, they added, Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. While the act remains that of the individual, it is nevertheless due more or less to the predisposing agency and efficacy of divine power exerted in lawful ways. This may be illustrated to a certain extent in the case of a man who wishes to construct a building. He decides on a plan. Then he hires the carpenters, masons, plumbers, etc. to do the work. These men are not forced to do the work. No compulsion of any kind is used. The owner simply offers the necessary inducements by way of wages, working conditions, and so on, so that the men work freely and gladly. They do in detail just what he plans for them to do. His is the primary and there is the secondary will or cause for the construction of the building. We often direct the actions of our fellow men without infringing on their freedom or responsibility. In a similar way, and to an infinitely greater degree, God can direct our actions. His will for the course of events is the primary cause, and man's will is the secondary cause, and the two work together in perfect harmony. In one sense, we can say that the kingdom of heaven is a democratic kingdom, paradoxical as that may sound. The essential principle of a democracy is that it rests on the consent of the governed. Heaven will be truly a kingdom, with God as the supreme ruler, yet it will rest on the consent of the governed. It is not forced on believers against their consent. They are so influenced that they become willing and accept the gospel and find it the delight of their lives to do their sovereign's will. 2. This objection bears equally against foreknowledge. Let it be noticed that the objection that foreordination is inconsistent with free agency 
bears equally against the doctrine of the foreknowledge of God. If God foreknows an event as future, it must be inevitably certain as if foreordained, and if one is inconsistent with free agency, then the other is also. This is often frankly admitted, and the Unitarians, while not evangelical, are at this point more consistent than the Arminians. They say that God knows all that is knowable, and that free acts are uncertain, and that it is doing no dishonor to God to say that he does not know them. We find, however, that the scriptures contain predictions of many events, great and small, which were perfectly fulfilled through the actions of free agents. Usually these agents were not even conscious that they were fulfilling divine prophecy. They acted freely, yet exactly as foretold. A few examples are the rejection of Jesus by the Jews, the parting of Jesus' garments, and the casting of lots by the Roman soldiers, Peter's denial of Jesus, the crowing of the cock, the spear thrust, the capture of Jerusalem, and the carrying away of the Jews into captivity, the destruction of Babylon, etc. It is plain that the writers of Scripture believe that these three acts to be fully foreknown by the divine mind and therefore absolutely certain to be accomplished. The foreknowledge of God did not destroy the freedom of Judas and Peter. At least they themselves did not think so. For Judas later came back and said, I have sinned in that I have betrayed innocent blood. And when Peter heard the cock crow and remembered the words of Jesus, he went out and wept bitterly. In regard to the events which were connected with Jesus' triumph entry into Jerusalem, it is written, These things understood not the disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things unto him. John 12:16. Because we know beforehand that an upright judge will refuse a bribe, and a miser will clutch a nugget of gold, does this alter the nature or prejudice the freedom of their acts? And if we, with our very limited knowledge of other men's natures and of the influences which we play upon them, are able to predict their actions with reasonable accuracy, shall not God, who understands perfectly their natures and these influences, know exactly what their actions will be? Hence, the certainty of an action is consistent with the liberty of the agent in executing it. Otherwise, God could not foreknow such actions as certain. Foreknowledge does not make future acts certain, but only assumes them to be so. And it is a contradiction of terms to say that God foreknows as a certain an event which in its very nature is uncertain. We must either say that future events are certain and that God knows the future, or that they are uncertain and that he does not know the future. The doctrines of God's foreknowledge and foreordination stand or fall together. 3. Certainty is consistent with free agency. Nor does it follow from the absolute certainty of a person's acts that he could not have acted otherwise. He could have acted otherwise if he had chosen to have done so. Oftentimes a man has power and opportunity to do that which it is absolutely certain he will not do, 
and to refrain from doing that which it is absolutely certain he will do. That is, no external influence determines his actions. Our acts are in accordance with the decrees, but not necessarily so. We can do otherwise, and often should. Judas and his accomplices were left to fulfill their purpose, and they did as their wicked inclinations prompted them. Hence Peter charged them with the crime, but he at the same time declared that they had acted according to the purpose of God, him being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye by the hands of lawless men did crucify and slay. Acts 2.23 On other grounds also it may be shown that certainty is consistent with free agency. We are often absolutely certain how we will act under given conditions so far as we are free to act at all. A parent may be certain that he will rescue a child in distress and that in doing so he will act freely. God is a free agent, yet it is certain that he will always do right. The holy angels and redeemed saints are free agents, yet it is certain that they will never sin. Otherwise, there would be no assurance of their remaining in heaven. On the other hand, it is certain that the devil, the demons, and fallen men will commit sin, although they are free agents. A father often knows how his son will act under a given circumstance, and by controlling these, he determines beforehand the course of action which the son follows, yet the son acts freely. If he plans that the son should be a doctor, he gives him encouragement along that line, persuades him to read certain books, to attend certain schools, and so presents the outside inducements that his plan works out. In the same manner, and to an infinitely greater extent, God controls our actions, so that they are certain although we act freely. His decree does not produce the event, but only renders its occurrence certain, and the same decree which determines the certainty of the action at the same time determines the freedom of the agent in the act. 4. Man's natural will is enslaved to evil. Strictly speaking, we may say that man has free will only in the sense that he is not under any outside compulsion which interferes with his freedom of choice or his just accountability. In his fallen state he only has what we may call the freedom of slavery. He is in bondage to sin and spontaneously follows Satan. He does not have the ability or incentive to follow God. Now we ask, is this a thing worthy of the name free? And the answer is no. Not free will, but self-will would be more appropriately describe man's condition since the fall. It is to be remembered that man was not created a captive to sin, but that he has come into that condition by his own fault, and a loss which he has brought upon himself does not free him from responsibility. After man's redemption is complete, he will spontaneously follow God, as do the holy angels, but never will he become entirely his own master. That this was Luther's doctrine cannot be denied. In his book, The Bondage of the Will, the main purpose of which 
was to prove that the will of man is by nature enslaved to evil only, and that because it is fond of that slavery, it is said to be free, he declared, whatever man does, he does necessarily, though not with any sensible compulsion, and he can only do what God from eternity willed and foreknew he should, which will of God must be effectual and his foresight must be certain. Neither the divine nor human will does anything by constraint, and whatever man does, be it good or bad, he does with as much appetite and willingness as if his will was really free. But after all, the will of God is certain and unalterable, and it is the governess of ours. In another place he says, when it is granted and established that free will, having once lost its liberty, is compulsively bound to the service of sin and cannot will anything good, I from these words can understand nothing else than that free will is an empty term whose reality is lost. And a lost liberty, according to my grammar, is no liberty at all. He refers to free will as a mere lie, and later adds, this therefore is also essentially necessary and wholesome for Christians to know, that God foreknows nothing by contingency, but that he foresees, purposes, and does all things according to his immutable, eternal, and infallible will. By this thunderbolt, free will is thrown prostrate, utterly dashed to pieces. It follows unalterably that all things which we do, although they may appear to us to be done mutably and contingently, and even may be done thus contingently by us, are yet in reality done necessarily and immutably with respect to the will of God. For the will of God is effective and cannot be hindered, because the very power of God is natural to him, and his wisdom is such that he cannot be deceived. It is sometimes objected that unless man's will is completely free, God commands him to do what he cannot do. In numerous places in Scripture, however, men are commanded to do things which in their own strength they are utterly unable to do. The man with the withered hand was commanded to stretch it forth. The paralytic was commanded to arise and walk. The sick man to arise, take up his bed and walk. The dead Lazarus was commanded to come forth. Men are commanded to believe, yet faith is said to be the gift of God. Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall shine upon thee. Ephesians 5.14 Ye therefore shall be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5.48 Man's self-imposed inability in the moral sphere does not free him from obligation. 5. God controls the minds of men and gives his people the will to come. God so governs the inward feelings, external environment, habits, desires, motives, etc. of men that they freely do what he purposes. This operation is inscrutable, but nonetheless real. And the mere fact that in our present state of knowledge we are not able fully to explain how this influence is exerted without destroying the free agency of man certainly does not prove that it cannot be so exerted. 
We do have enough knowledge, however, to know that God's sovereignty and man's freedom are realities and that they work together in perfect harmony. Paul plants and Apollos waters, but God gives the increase. Paul commanded the Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And in the immediately following verse, the reason which he assigns for this is, for it is God who worketh in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And the psalmist declared, Thy people offer themselves willingly in the day of thy power. Psalm 110, verse 3. The actions of a creature are to a great extent predetermined when God stamps upon it a particular nature at its creation. If it is given human nature, its actions will be those common to men. If horse nature, those common to horses. Or, if vegetable nature, those common to vegetable world. Plain it is that those given human nature were foreordained not to walk on four feet, nor to nigh like a horse. An act is not free if determined from without, but it is free if rationally determined from within, and this is precisely what God's foreordination effects. The comprehensive decree provides that each man shall be a free agent, possessing a certain character, surrounded by a certain environment, subject to certain external influences, internally moved by certain affections, desires, habits, etc., and that in view of all these he shall freely and rationally make a choice. That the choice will be one thing and not another is certain, and God, who knows and controls the exact causes of each influence, knows what that choice will be, and in a real sense determines it. Then Chius expressed this idea very clearly when he declared that man was a free agent, and then added, yet he acts from the first to the last moment of his life in absolute subserviency, though perhaps he does not know it nor design it, to the purposes and decrees of God concerning him, notwithstanding which he is sensible of no compulsion, but acts freely and voluntarily as if he were sui juris, subject to no control, and absolutely Lord of himself. And Luther says, both good and evil men, though by their actions they fulfill the decrees and appointments of God, yet are not forcibly constrained to do anything, but act willingly. In accordance with this, we believe that without destroying or impairing the free agency of men, God can exercise over them a particular providence and work in them through his Holy Spirit, so that they will come to Christ and persevere in his service. We believe further that none have this will and desire except those whom God has previously made willing and desirous, and that he gives this will and desire to none but his own elect. But while thus induced, the elect remain as free as the man that you persuade to take a walk or to invest in government securities. An illustration which well shows God's revelation with both the saved and the lost is given by H. Johnson. He says, Here are two hundred men in prison for violation of law. I make provision for their pardon so that justice is satisfied and the law vindicated, while yet the prisoners may go free. The prison doors are unbarred, the bolts thrown back, and 
promise of absolute pardon is made and assurance is given every prisoner that he can now step out a free man. But not a man moves. Suppose now I determine that my provision for their pardon shall not be in vain. So I personally go to a hundred and fifty of these condemned and guilty men and by a kind and loving violence persuade them to come out. That's election. But have I kept the other fifty in? The provision for pardon is still sufficient. The prison doors are still unbarred. The gates of their cells are still unlocked and open. And freedom is promised to everyone who will step out and take it. And every man in that prison knows he can be a free man if he will. Have I kept the other fifty in? The old Pelagian tenet, which has sometimes been adopted by Arminians, that virtue and vice derive their own praiseworthiness or blameworthiness from the power of the individual beforehand to choose the one or the other, logically leads one to deny goodness to the angels in heaven or to saints in glory or even to God himself, since it is impossible for the angels, saints, or for God to sin. Virtue, then, is in the heavenly state, would cease to be meritorious because it requires no effort of choice. The idea that the power of choice between good and evil is that which ennobles and dignifies the will is a misconception. It does indeed raise man above the brute creation, but it is not the perfection of his will. Says Mosley, the highest and perfect state of the will is a state of necessity, and the power of choice, so far from being essential to a true and genuine will, is its weakness and defect. What can be a greater sign of an imperfect and immature state of the will than that which good and evil before it, it should be in suspense, wish to do? In this life, that grace from which good actions necessarily follow is not given with uniformity, and consequently even the regenerate occasionally commit sin, but in the next life it will be either constantly given or taken away entirely, and then the determination of the will will be constant either for good or for evil. Perhaps some idea of the manner in which the divine and human agencies harmonize to produce one work may be gained from a consideration of the view in which the scriptures were written. These are in the highest sense, and at the same time the words of God, and also the words of men. It is not merely certain parts or elements which are to be assigned to God or to men, but rather the whole of Scripture in all of its parts, in form of expression, as well as in substance of teaching, is from God and also from men. By inspiration, says Hamilton, we do not mean that God used the individual writers as automaton or that he dictated to them what they should say, but we mean that his Holy Spirit so guided and controlled the writers that what they wrote was true and was the particular truth God wanted to be given in writing to his people. God allowed the writers to use their own intellects, their own language, in their own style, but when they wrote, his Holy Spirit supernaturally kept their writing free from error and rendered it the exact truth which God wanted conveyed to his people down through the ages. The Bible thus becomes a unit, 
parts of which cannot be cut off without irreparable injury to the whole. Undoubtedly, there is a contradiction in supposing that chance happenings or those events produced by free will agents can be the objects of definite foreknowledge or the subjects of previous arrangement. In the very nature of the case, they must be both radically and eventually uncertain, so that, as Top Lady says, any asserter of self-determination is in fact, whether he means it or no, a worshipper of the heathen lady named Fortune, and an ideal deposer of providence from its throne. Unless God could thus govern the minds of men, he would be constantly engaged in devising new expedients to offset the effects of the influences introduced by the millions of his creatures. If men actually had free will, then in attempting to govern or convert a person, God would have to approach him as a man approaches his fellow men, with several plans in mind so that if the first proves unsuccessful, he can try the second, and if that does not work, then the third, and so on. If the acts of free agents are uncertain, God is ignorant of the future except in the most general way. He is then surprised, times without number, and daily receives great accreations of knowledge. But such a view is dishonoring to God, and is both unreasonable and unscriptural. Unless God's omniscience is denied, we must hold that he knows all truth, past, present, and future, and that while events may appear uncertain from our human viewpoint, from his viewpoint they are fixed and certain. This argument is so conclusive that its force is generally admitted. The weaker objection which is sometimes urged that God voluntarily wills not to know some of the future acts of men in order to leave them free has no support either in scripture or in reason. Furthermore, it represents God as acting like a father of a lot of bad boys who goes and hides because he is afraid he will see them do something of which he would not approve. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, 
God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.